0: Hi, I'm Andy Murray. Welcome to It's a Customer's World podcast. Now more than ever, retailers and brands are accelerating their quest to be more customer-centric. But to be truly customer-centric, it requires both a shift in mindset and ways of working. Not just in marketing, but in all parts of the organization. In this podcast series, I'll be talking with practitioners, thought leaders, and scholars to hear their thoughts on what it takes to be a leader in today's customer-centric world. Hello, everyone. In this episode, I sat down with Michael Elgus. Michael is the EVP of Retail Marketing Solutions at IRI. He has over 20 years of experience in retail marketing and insights. He's also one of my go-to guys as a thought leader in the industry. We discussed Michael's background in marketing and how the demand for insights has changed over the years. He talked about how the centralized function of an insights team is still important, but that self-serve reporting is really necessary now more than ever to meet today's demand. He also talked about the importance of good question asking and understanding where things connect in order to manage a business effectively. So without further ado, let's go to the episode.
1: Perfect. It's great to see you, Andy. I think uh, some of my best stories come from the work we did together at Walmart, um, particularly when we were, you know, hashing a new creative direction and there were lots of opinions and things to sort out. But uh, I spent 10 years in retail, as you know, led the category management team at uh, Walmart Marketing. And then about seven years ago, I, I went on the quest, the big data quest, because I was really fascinated with this idea of connecting advertising consumers and their behavior. So joined IRI and have helped build out our, our, what I call marketing practice. It's part of our media group, but uh, we help retailers understand their customer behavior. We try to help them be more relevant and uh, put some more stuff in the basket.
2: Well, you know, if you've been in the industry at all, you've heard of IRI and uh, you may have been uh, deeply engaged with IRI data and, and IRI solutions. But for those that don't, uh, have that understanding, you know. Put in context where IRI comes into play for most companies. Sure,
1: you know, in the consumer packaged goods industry, about sixty percent or so of companies subscribe to us to get a view of total marketplace. So IRI brings together store level sales across grocery, C store, drug uh club, mass and then uh, in addition to that feed, we have a number of retailers that participate in a, a loyalty sharing where we can see uh, transactions through um, what we call frequent shopper programs or, or loyalty cards. And then increasingly you've got things that are happening via uh, receipt capture. And uh, most recently, we have merged with NPD, which, of course, is the leader in covering kind of all the verticals we don't. They're in uh, hard goods and soft uh, goods and uh, electronics and food service. So we're super excited to have kind of a total view, uh, particularly for our our, like mass channel customers that, that sell all that good stuff
2: well congratulations i read that recently i thought that was quite a coup to pull those two sides of the data equation and categories together to build that more complete solution so congratulations on that front thank
1: you
2: um one of the things that's happening we've been doing a lot of work you and i've worked together some on this evolving retail media network environment and Retail media networks have a couple of different value propositions. One, maybe a more effective way to reach the customer for placing media that's more relevant to what the customer may want. But then the second is the data and insights that retailers have through their closed loop environments, Um, which brings up a question about how does the retail media network trend uh, play out in terms of data and insights from your perspective looking at it from an IRI view, and uh, just talk to me a little bit about how you see data and insights evolving and changing uh, as more of these retail media networks come online.
1: Well, I I think it really does give you an an opportunity to put the customer first. Um, That's a mantra, I think, with a lot of great retailers. Uh, The truth is a lot of time is spent on category management. So, you know, as you go below Catman to understand customers, and the interaction, you start to see where you have groups that are underserved, you start to see where you potentially have things that are, are redundant. And uh, I think the big promise of retail media, to be honest with you, is relevancy, because if I can start to think about the customers that want to hear what I want to talk about, then you know everybody wins because the consumer gets something either new or better, the retailer sells more, and uh, everybody is growing their business, right?
2: Yeah, that's true. What um, one of the things I've noticed, and you and I've worked on a little bit, is just getting good customer data inside of a retail ecosystem. It's not an easy challenge because customer data, you know, sits in so many different places. And let's face it, most retailers are not built on data science uh, practitioners. That uh, a company like IRI uh, has been, you know, built upon. So, I mean, what are some of the challenges that retailers have to work through to get good customer data?
1: Well, I think your first point is a really good one in terms of bringing things together. Um, our company grew because we had to build a platform to do a couple things. We had to cleanse data because oftentimes retailers have different systems with uh, limitations and we had to harmonize views across you know geography and brand and, and category alignments. And so we've been pretty f- successful, I would say, in bringing together supply chain and store level. The customer piece is interesting because the, the capture rate is different, right? If you're Sam's Club or Costco, you know every time somebody comes in and you have a longitudinal view of everything they ever bought, if you're a retailer that doesn't focus on you know, capturing who the customer is, you, you may only have a view of about half of, of your customers or less. And so then you, you have to make some assumptions or, or fill in the gaps. And that's you know kind of where our company comes in. Some of that can be done with, with data science and understanding groupings of transactions, even if it's not a known customer. And then, of course, uh, there are places like receipts and other places where customers are willing to submit information um, if there's a value proposition. So uh, I think the future is there'll be more data uh, to work with. And so it'll be even more important to be able to align that and uh, simplify it so people can use it.
2: Yeah, I think that's a key word simplification. Um, from my experience being at ASDA, we had quite a lot of uh, insights, but sometimes it felt like we had a poverty of insight. And there's a difference, I think, in in doing that. You can really get uh, overwhelmed with customer data and the amount of it when you start working at scale. How do you um, look at simplifying and getting to insight versus having an abundance of insights?
1: Yeah, I, I think the starting point is democratizing it, right? I think in the past, the approach was you have a, a core function within the company that cranks a bunch of data and and provides what people need. I think the future is predictive, right? There's certain business questions that you're gonna continue to ask. And there's certain things that can be solved with rules, right, I I know if something isn't moving in the store, I may have an out of stock issue and that's an easy flag. the harder piece is what companies like ours are trying to do with, with AI and machine learning to say, you know there are certain things that are going to create questions and so we ought to be able to predict what some of those are and I think you'll see less of people doing what you and I used to do, which was look at the Monday morning report, you know, and, and yeah. get a good history of what's happened. And instead, log on to a dashboard that's more about your alerts, right? Where where are you not serving customers well? Where do you have, you know, pricing issues, distribution issues, all the things a retailer has to think about, but hopefully served in a way where you're spending time addressing the issues, not not looking for them.
2: Hmm. Many believe that uh, it's just gonna be too impossible to predict customer behavior, human behavior, because we're so mercurial in so many different ways. Um, what are you guys learning about the ability to predict human behavior?
1: Well, I think we kind of have it easy in consumer packaged goods because we do tend to be creatures of, of habit, you know? Good point. If you enjoy Cheetos last week, there's a good chance you're going to be wanting some next week. So some of it's easy. I think the the piece that I've always thought was very interesting was this idea of kind of unique reach and frequency. Right? How do you drive apart things that looks like substitutes but really aren't because they they either hit different need states or you know maybe are, are some that are for everyday and others are for a special occasion or, or what have you. And so that that's a piece that I'm very interested in because I think if we could get better at that, we would at least look like we were more predictive because we'd start to understand the decisions underneath the buy. And that that allows you to either be more proactive or maybe actually predict what's going to happen.
2: Hmm. Well, you brought up the word measurement, I think, in there along the way. And you start talking about reach and uh, things that might be considered KPIs for companies. Uh, Clearly, with retail media networks, return on ad spend, now incremental ROAS or ROI, tended to be the key KPIs you're looking for to become more relevant to the customer. Um, Talk to me a bit about the measurement space, because... Uh, CPM cost per click, you know, the world of trying to reach consumers uh, has loads of KPIs. And if you were building a dashboard, how would you think about the, the way the customer should be looked at from a measurement standpoint?
1: Yeah, I think for a campaign window, Andy, incremental sales is true north, right? And so a lot of our measurement products are focused on establishing the right control groups. They have the right baseline. The challenge back to your Cheetos is, uh, you know, Frito-Lay is going to sell Cheetos. The question is, did they sell one more bag of Cheetos than they would have sold otherwise? Mm. And that's the question we're trying to answer is, was it an incremental sale? What I find really interesting about retail is you've got a longitudinal view of the customer. So I think the future is more lifetime value because I know past the campaign window, what you continue to buy, I know from your history, what you may have switched to or from rather. And so I think the opportunity is to think about it in terms of customer acquisition right so you've got a goal for the campaign that's probably return on ad spend but then you also have this longer window to say you know how did i change people's hearts and minds did their behavior change and if it did then you know return on ad spend is short term focused versus you know locking somebody in to enjoying a product ongoing mm-hmm. and so that's that's what we're thinking about with the the retailers
2: uh, you may be already working on this I'm, I'm sure you are but i guess it's more than just the return on ad spend but then what caused it uh and you start looking at attribution multi-point attribution multi-touch mm-hmm. uh how does that get uncomplicated uh, going forward
1: You know, I I always laugh. Multi-touch attribution reminds me of uh, a joke a Google guy told me one time of trying to figure out which drink gave you the hangover. You know, like there was just (laughs) one drink that was the big problem in your evening last night. And yeah, it's funny. We have, I think, a very good approach to multi-touch attribution, which looks at historically your diminishing return curves or, you know, your ad stock to say, okay, these things had partial impact. And so, you know, our belief is that idea of assigning partial credit uh, algorithmically is as close as you're going to get. But um, I mean, you and I worked on a couple of brands that spent uh, a considerable amount of money. And was it an interesting that, you know, very personalized tactics worked a lot better when we had heavy weights of mass tactics going on at the same time. And that that science aspect of attribution, that amplification of how the human mind works, I I don't think we're ever gonna completely tease that out, but I do think that products that start to assign partial credit at least help you understand the mix of things and and give you a place to to, build hypotheses and continue to, to iterate and test.
2: Well, when I went to Ascent in 2016, we did not have uh, a market mix modeling or media mix modeling uh, framework in place. And it took us a couple of years to get over 200 data feeds pulled together so that we could do that. And then you're running the model maybe once every three to six months because of the cost and complexity of billions of records. Uh, and for those that feel like, you know, market mix modeling and being able to do multi-touch attribution real-time predictively, uh, that's a pretty far reach and a big heavy lift because most uh, most yeah. of the time the technology is just not there yet for that kind of lifting unless it's evolved in the last couple of years. I don't know.
1: I think it's gotten better. I mean, we are still struggling with the data and the formatting, right? You have customers that show up with like spreadsheets and flat files of, of data that they want ingested. And I, I think the opportunity is to certainly focus on where we do have Addressable media that can be, you know, tracked in a in a at least a consistent manner, campaign to campaign, so it can be ingested consistently. That that's kind of how we're scaling up the, the retail media work that we do is, is getting files back daily and in a consistent manner. So you don't have to interpret them. You can just ingest them. But I think one of the opportunities for the industry, Andy, is I don't think people are tending to think about the back end, right? We think a lot about media delivery and KPIs around delivery and click-throughs, that capture of a good log file of who saw it, when did they see it, of, you right. know, which creative were they exposed to, or which target group were they a part of. You know, I think we're more advanced in digital. Um, you know, getting there now with with video and connected TV, but uh, it would be great if if all media was was able to be captured in that way. It would allow you to do a lot more data science.
2: Hmm. it sure would. And I think also about when you start talking about different digital experiences, uh, where. I've heard know we've heard about e-commerce of course but this me commerce this idea that you can all of a sudden be sitting on a sofa playing a video game in ad comes up you make the purchase add to cart and you're on your way and when you start looking at the marketing funnel and the traditional ways we see things these lines are getting more and more blurred yeah. uh, and you start looking at at uh, shoppable social uh, you know how do you see that transition where almost any media touch point is a complete a journey from beginning to end.
1: Yeah, that's a great point, because I, I think there's been a lot written about the traditional funnel is dead. And I, I think that's true. You're not marching through this linear path of, you know, awareness to purchase. Um, that said, I think products are very different in terms of, you know, what kind of nudge it's going to take to engage you. And so, you know, mm-hmm. we tend to approach every uh, problem as if we're selling a Mercedes Benz or something that's going to take, you know, all sorts of research. And the truth is there, there's, you know, those impulse buys now being delivered to my couch, as you said, where the price point is low, if the friction of trial is is low, like it's pretty easy to just say, yes, I'll give that a go. And I think it is possible to go from not being aware to purchase in you know, a, a 30 second, 15 second ad. So it's a, it's a really interesting marketing challenge.
2: Hmm. What has surprised you uh, now that you've been in the data space for the last seven years that uh, uh, you f- found interesting or didn't know before regarding the consumer? Any, any big surprises that uh, it's kind of emerged in either trend form or specifics? Oh, we could
1: probably fill up a podcast of the things I didn't know when I when I started but um, you know I, I think a couple things that I find interesting um, that those tipping points that you were talking about um, with being able to predict what, is going to happen with consumers is you start to peel the onion a lot of times there's life changes that you're unaware of right that happen with consumers Mm. and uh i think the probably best documented one is, is having your first kid where all of a sudden you know not only are you buying Things in the baby category, but you're recognizing that you may not leave the house for the next six to twelve months, and so you all of a sudden need a bigger TV and you know more comfortable chairs or whatever. And uh, I think we've I've started to see more of that because I've had years now of seeing you know syndicated research combined with with custom and uh, you know attitudinal type of, of work being brought in. And one of the fun things about um, our company is we're, we're kind of an open platform. In that you know, we provide data to others. Uh, people provide insights and do things with with uh, you know in partnership with us. And so you start to get views that uh, are just very different. And so you know, we work with some folks that do interesting things around location, around you know influencers and how that works, around um, you know which creative is resonating based on you know everything from eye tracking to just you know tremendous numbers of iterations that you can put machine learning against. So. What I've seen is there's a lot of questions that seemed unanswerable that actually do have, you know, ways to, to get deeper learnings on. And I, I really enjoy that stuff because it, it starts to unlock a little bit about human psyche and, you know, why we are who we are and what makes people so interesting in general.
2: Well, uh, there's a lot to be said about understanding the humanities. And I think, you know, most. Uh, marketing, MBA types uh, probably could spend a bit more time understanding the humanities because it gets to you the why we do what we do. Right. And you start coupling that with rich data and all of a sudden the, the human story becomes a bit more interesting and understandable uh, when you study that and put it together. Uh, so, Mike, it's a Herculean lift sometimes to get all the right data and be able to do the proper uh, analytics to have a story to tell. It's another thing to tell the story, and when you look at data and storytelling, how does IRI look at the 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 telling of the story so that people could understand that? How important is that uh, alongside the ability to actually, you know, find the insight?
1: I, I think it's critically important because uh, Andy, as you know, if the solution doesn't fit within the way you're thinking about the problem, it's it's hard to digest it, and so you know, part of our uh, focus has been bringing different data sets together so if, if you want to build a report in our system and it involves you know something that's coming out of your loyalty data plus something that is total market maybe coming from panel plus maybe a supply chain solution of you know why you do or do not have that item where it needs to be that we do it all on one platform so I can literally build like you would in PowerPoint a story that's bringing data from different data stacks and putting it into one environment to, to bring that together in fact we actually use the term story we have reports <laughs> they go into stories and the stories go into desks if you want a desk that you know has a, a collection of stories and we think of desks as you know typically by function I'm a, I'm a merchant I'm doing a line review I'm going to go to that desk and I'm going to pick the stories I need for the new item launches and for the items we're thinking about discontinuing at Etc. You got to have a framework to, to digest it.
2: So you have had a marketing career before going into this data space. Uh, looking back, you know, now that you've been enlightened with new views of data over the last seven years, you know, what do you wish you knew when you were in a raw, you know, category, leading category marketing or whatever, you know, core marketing work you're doing that, You know now, but boy, it had been handy to know that when you were in those core marketing jobs.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I I think I've started to realize that there's many answers, not just just one. Oh, Um, you mean there's more than one? (laughs) (laughs) When When I started my career, I did it with Kraft Foods and, you know, they have tremendous discipline to this day, you know, similar to how people think of Procter & Gamble, there was really good process for everything from, you know, hatching an idea to how things were prioritized and decisions were made. And candidly, we were a fairly financially driven company. And so there was a lot that, uh, you know, was driven by just on what what has to be true for this uh, this business to actually make money and be uh, profitable. And What I have seen, I think, the the farther along I've gotten is there are times where you just have to take a leap of faith and be more like Steve Jobs saying, you know, the customer is not going to tell you how to incrementally get to an iPhone. Like at some point, you're going to have to figure that out for them. And so, you know, I'm fortunate to be in a company where we are taking some risks like that and we have customers where we do. Co innovation, knowing that, uh, you know, it may or may not be something that's that's scalable or something we want to continue on. But I would tell you some of the um, some of the breakthroughs we've had is when we've leaned in without probably having the right business case, because we just believed based on, you know, what we knew about the customer and, and what it um, you know, was the vision, I guess, of where we wanted to get to that we could and uh, that's, that's probably what makes you know, a private equity firm maybe a little easier to work for than a uh, fortune, you know, whatever, one uh, CPG or, or retail, but uh, that, that is where a lot of the, the, the magic happens in my mind.
2: Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, and it's really difficult in customer centricity type work where you maybe are trying something completely new and you don't have all the facts, the historical data to perhaps make the business case. And so you do have to take a, a leap of faith. You know, Speaking of the customer centricity direction, um, I, I think it's probably fair to say that a lot of firms like IRI or Nielsen have been historically tilted for NPD type processes, you know, launching new products or looking at new markets. Um, But have you seen a trend toward leveraging firms like yours to really improve the customer experience as the North Star versus, you know, feeding insights into the financial planning process or into the product development process?
1: Yeah, I, my sense is that that has evolved quite a bit because uh, I think it, the world has gotten more complex and uh, you know what's interesting is some of the questions that are tactical around like what channels a customer is using, start to unpack who is that customer and how do I serve them, right? So we get involved in a lot of uh, trying to understand as, as customers are buying things uh, for pickup or having things sent to their home, You know what's going to ultimately turn into a subscription, what's probably something that you're still going to come into the store to pick up and, and understanding all of that and how people are shifting behind uh, different you know, channels of, of how they get product um, is, is just necessary to be successful. And so it forces you to be pretty consumer centric and how you, you know, plan and, and, uh, and research your plans uh, across the business.
2: Mike, what do you what would you say to a, a graduating student that uh, is looking at IRI or a, a data insights type company, uh, what would you say to them to best prepare them for a career in this trajectory uh, or at any kind of a career advice as they move into uh, a world that is now um, populated with loads of data sets and the ability to have a good understanding of what data can do and what insights can mean and and how those dots connect is really more important than ever. So Mm -hmm. career advice.
1: Learn to code. That would be my first uh, piece of advice. And uh, I I don't know, you know, honestly, that uh, if you start as a coder today, that would be the skill set that you would need to do um, maybe a more senior level job but I think understanding how math serves uh, the business and how it solves problems understanding you know how uh, rules and machine learning work I think is really grounded in kind of understanding uh, just the the coding uh, behind that and I do not consider myself a coder or somebody that probably could even you know, uh, hang in that conversation, but I've seen enough with a uh, couple of boys that are in college that are you know, into mathematics and uh, computer science to see the connection points there. So I think that's number one is get comfortable with uh, with data science and, and the role it plays. And the number two, I, I love about 10 years ago, I was out at Yahoo and I was in their um, learning lab. And I said to the person that ran their lab, this is just overwhelming to me because you're continuing to make me realize how ignorant I am by exposing me to things I did not know existed. And she looked at me and she said, you know what? the more you're in this space, the more you feel that way. And I feel that way here at the center of, you know, one of the
0: Mm.
1: most uh, powerful uh, technology companies and platforms. And so I think that, that being humble enough to recognize that this technology curve is one you're always going to be surfing and not uh, ever getting to the top of is exciting. If you're comfortable with a little bit of ambiguity and, I love it because it means I'm never wrong. You know, there's a chance uh, that tomorrow, (laughs) what I say might be true. Right
2: (laughs) now, we're back to one answer again. Um, So, how has the demand for insights uh, evolved? Uh, You and I both worked in you know big retail, where the insights team was. Overwhelmed with requests to yeah. serve either merchandising with category reviews or uh, executives with business questions, there never seemed to be enough of the insight team to to spread around uh, for the business needs. But what's what's happening right now? Is is the demand still outstripping uh, the supply of talent and cap- capability, or, or has it caught up?
1: Yeah, no, I think there's always more questions and there are resources to answer them. And you know, the, the clients that are working with us believe in democratizing the data and trying to get it onto the you know, desktop of the people that are making the decisions. So I think that centralized function is still super important for where things need to come together and solve some of those enterprise type of, of connection points. But we believe that you know we should be able to deliver reports directly to the end user in a format where they can move towards a decision very quickly without having to do a lot of analysis. And, you know, we're working on like we call genius script and natural language processing to just make it easier to interact with the data. Because we we think unless it becomes, you know, self-serve, you're you're never going to have a chance to resource everybody that needs the data to do their jobs well.
2: I I take it that that is seen as welcome help to most central teams where they're still centralized teams. I think it typically is. Um, you know, we've seen some downsizing
1: for some of those teams, so that's that's always a tough conversation when it's going that direction. But um, you know, I think there was a point in time where there was concern if you give people too much data, they'll they'll draw the wrong conclusions or you know uh, right. support an opinion that uh, you know is is contrary to where you're hoping they would net out. But I think the truth is. Uh, these businesses are too complicated uh, to not let that happen. And that's where going back to asking good questions and understanding where things connect is is how you got to manage it as a leader.
2: If you were advising a senior executive on, you know, there's probably three, you may not know a lot about data science, but, but there's three questions you should be thinking about when you're looking at information and data that's new. And part of it like one I would always see as a problem is, they the data is not on the right time horizons, and so mm-hmm. I'd be looking at uh, NP net promoter score or customer promoter score that was used receipt data, and and trying to draw a conclusion because it was posted this month, but that had, that's a lagging, you know there was a lag in the data that could be six weeks sure. on what you're seeing here was a cause and effect there, and if you misread that as one time st- stack that's not not right, then it's a huge mistake in interpreting data. But I'm, I'm just curious if there are a set of um, questions that you would advise a senior executive to have top of mind to make them better leaders to ask the right questions about data.
1: Yeah, I think that the process we use is we will get to a blueprint based on a requirement document and the best requirement documents are driven by actual use cases. So exactly the example you gave of, I need to be able to do such and such with a net promoter score, can't be more than this old or it won't connect to something else that I'm doing. Like where we've done good due diligence where the company that we're working with has been able to articulate those types of use cases, it makes my life so much easier because then we understand what the blueprint needs to be to deliver that. And that is the biggest challenge, Andy. I think is when you get siloed, and our system needs to attach to something else. If for whatever reason people haven't felt comfortable sharing what those other systems need or what they can provide, then you do end up in this, uh, you know, post implementation, uh, you know, bug fix or, or next project to address those things. So you know, thinking through what you actually want to be able to do is, is the key. And I think as an executive, you should be able to get your team to work with their team to articulate that. And it should be cross-functional, right? It should be at a fairly senior level if it's a major engagement uh, because everybody should be benefiting. I think one of the challenges that you and I both saw and mm. uh, seen across retail is the organizations can be so big that people are solving little problems that should be interconnected. So yeah. there's a bit of, of that uh, change management and team management that uh, is critical too here as much as anywhere.
2: Excellent, Mike. Any last thoughts uh, to graduating seniors in terms of uh, how to approach uh, the career that's in front of them?
1: Well, I will tell you, we definitely need engineers and data scientists. So if you're graduating with one of those degrees, we would love to talk to you. And that said, we also have roles for people that uh, are just good at interpreting data and working with clients to, to help solve problems. So uh, the the talent needs in, in the space are still very high. The other thing I would say is have fun because uh, there is um, a lot to get stressed out about in this day and age, um, but there's also lots to be joyous and excited about. And uh, you know, when you do choose a company, find one where you can have a little bit of fun uh, in between uh, doing all that, that hard lifting,
2: right? Outstanding. Thank you so much, Mike. It's been a pleasure as always.
1: Good to see you, Andy. Thank you.
0: That's it for this episode of It's a Customer's World. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends, and I'd be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's a Customer's World podcast is a product of the University of Arkansas's customer-centric leadership initiative and a Wilton College original production.